Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the next episode of the Cold Beer and Cool Movie Podcast. My name's Dustin. And I'm Lakeisha. Welcome back to the movie review, beer review podcast, recorded here from our home here in Portland, Oregon. Two new beers, a brand new movie, new-ish movie. Yeah. And it it's hit the the red box stage, right? Yes, this this time of year it gets a little hit and miss as far as what's available to go see in a theater and what we're interested in seeing. Uh, but we ended up um, after the uh, the Robin Hood that we saw. Yeah, <laughs> uh, that one was painful. Yeah, so I think we decided to get a little the taste out of our mouth a little bit. And uh, a movie from this year that we missed when it was in theaters. But again, this one uh, brings Taron Egerton back into the podcast as we saw... Rocket Man. Rocket Man, the biopic-ish uh, about Elton John. Yeah. I, um, I think we had to give Taron Egerton his due after seeing him in, yeah, a movie that in, was... in Robin Hood, which was just not... Not good. Not great. I mean, yeah. it was funny. It, there were fun-ish aspects of it, mm-hmm. as we talked about in our last podcast. Um, but he's he's much more talented than that. I mean, yeah, and we talked sure. about that in, you know, uh, Kingsman, which um, is a, a movie that I enjoy ninety nine percent of. Um, and then Eddie the Eagle, I think, was also a really good movie for him. Yeah. But I think uh, this movie. Was I mean I don't know what did you think of it I know how I felt but oh it's uh, yeah just a big smile on your face the whole time you're watching it mm-hmm. really it's uh, it's really good um, inventive I feel yeah. for the this particular genre if you will of biopics mm-hmm. you know it's uh, a little a little different than what you know the formula usually is which I appreciated and I'll talk about that more later but yeah it's it's really good I mean people are gonna forever compare it to bohemian rhapsody well i mean it was directed by the same guy yeah well he took over right for brian singer on bohemian rhapsody and finished it correct yeah so So, but that it meant that he really left his flavor on that movie yeah you know and and just that there were you know two uh stories about british musicians Mm -hmm. that came out fairly close together correct you know so it's interesting because while i enjoyed bohemian rhapsody I had never felt it made sense that it got nominated for Best Picture. Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel that this film is superior. Yeah. Um, okay. Interesting. Uh, and so, but I, but for some reason, I doubt it'll get the nominations that Bohemian Rhapsody did. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but anyway. Yeah. Well, it'll be. Yeah. I I have a couple of things about kind of the comparisons between the two. Yeah. But it'll be. But I just felt they were very different takes. Oh, on biopics, yes. which mm-hmm. I appreciated. So, um, otherwise, it, there was no way Rocket Man wasn't going to get compared, just because it was a, a, as you pointed out, a biopic of a British, you know, musician, mm-hmm. um, and to come so close on the heels of Bohemian Rhapsody just meant that there were. It, it, I'm really glad it ended up being so dramatically different. Yeah. So. Yeah. Okay. Well, I have a beer in front of me. Yes, and I have one in front of me. And I am, again, going uh, across the Atlantic. I saw that. So it was kind of Oktoberfest season. Mm-hmm. And so I went back to Germany and I got uh, the Polliner Original Munich Lager. 
Uh, I believe I did something from Polliner before, like a Bach beer that they make. Mm-hmm. Um, but this, uh, I don't know if, if I haven't done too many lagers. No, not really. No, because, you know, and every time I think of lager, I think of Coors Light. Because <laughs> that's what, you know, essentially what's what that style of beer is. That's how they sell it. That's for sure. Yeah. But what's great about, um, well, first of all, this this is super old, like the brewery itself. Um, well, the story goes that uh, there are the monks in a monastery in Munich, the name of the monastery I'm not going to try to pronounce, started brewing a strong beer, the Polliner Salvator, which I believe is the beer I reviewed uh, earlier from them. Uh, and they brewed it naturally according to the purity law of 1516. Whatever that is. Ooh, the purity uh, law. Whatever the monks didn't drink themselves was given to the, po- to the poor or sold in its cloister pub. As ever larger numbers of people in Munich began drinking the, uh, the monastery's beer, civilian brewers voiced their complaints to the city council <laughs> on February 24th, 1634 about the competition from the monastery. This letter is considered the first documented evidence of the Polliner Brewery's existence and is to this day used as the founding date of the brewery since 1634. That's incredible. Right? And uh, and you know what? I really like this lager. Oh, oh yes. Nice. It is 4.9% alcohol by volume. It I love that the can mm-hmm. is a gold it is the gold color of the beer itself. It is. It is. And it ha- you know it has a little bit more hop flavor. I mean, not a ton because it's still a lager, but you can taste it more. It's far better than your mass-produced American oh, yeah. stuff. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, it's very crisp and refreshing, and it doesn't taste like it's just, you know, bad water put inside of <laughs> a bottle or can. Whatever it's uh, yeah. So if anybody listening is just like you know, you know what I'm just a I'm just a Budweiser guy, or I'm just a or girl, um, you know I'm just I just want my beer that tastes like that all the time, and uh, go find something from Germany. <laughs> it might cost you a little bit more, but it is worth it. This is uh, yeah. I think this is a very crisp and classy, refreshing beer. Nice. A nice palate cleanser from like all the IPAs we usually have. Ooh. Well, I'm going to reach across the table here in a little bit and taste it after I finish describing my beer. Okay. Which, uh, probably to the surprise of none of our regular listeners, is an IPA. Yeah. Um, I actually had a different beer kind of on... um, on deck to drink mm-hmm. but i had to i just i woke up today i was just not feeling it i was like i just need to go with a nice solid ipa go back to go back sorry uh, i laugh because i always seem to have an ipa but um to go into something that i know i enjoy uh-huh. but we haven't actually talked about yet and I was a little surprised when we realized that this is a brewery, a local brewery, that we haven't spent a lot of time um, discussing on our podcast because they're yeah. really great. We've been there. Um, I am drinking uh, the IPA from Bowie um, Brewing Beer Company, um, and Bowie is out in Astoria, Oregon. Mm-hmm. So we've been there, um, and it is pretty cool um it was founded in 
Well, it was opening opening in 2013. Okay. Um, but their grand opening was in January of 2014. And um, they were the fourth brewery to, to uh, open in Astoria behind Fort George, Astoria Brewing, and Hondos. Um, so it lives in what was known as the old New English Fish Company Cannery. Mm-hmm. And they, at the time, were taking up 10,000 square feet of that 44,000 square feet building. But I think at this point in time, they've taken it over. Over, yeah. Yeah, it's it's all them. Um, and so, yeah, they, they started really solid. Like, this was not a mom-and-pop brewery that kind of then grew into something really big. Uh-huh. Um, this started with uh, several, uh, five main founders. And then um, there were like all, close to, but not quite as um, 20 investors that were part of this project. Yeah. So, I mean, it had a lot of kind of support going into it when it opened. Um, and if you've never actually been out there uh, to Astoria and you are anywhere in the vicinity of Oregon, you should go. Astoria as a city is a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, I, Fort George um, Brewery out there is one of my favorites. And so I always like it when we go out there. But exploring uh, Bowie, which is right on the Columbia River, mm-hmm. was really cool. So I do have to say, if you can um, head out there, you should. So uh, they described their... I love the the way they describe their brewery. They they describe it as um, oh I got to go back. Sorry, I literally just lost it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but when they started, they they discussed the fact that um, they are uh, like they take beer brewing seriously and they're always looking to explore. Um, German beer actually in their, in their roots. That's kind of their roots of exploration. So, um, I don't think this IPA came from that because it is, uh, it is pretty hoppy. Yeah. (laughs) Um, it's got 70 IBUs and they say that this doesn't have a bitter taste. So it talks about, um, they say this Northwest IPA is proof that you can go big without the bitter bite. Nothing overboard, well-balanced, and lovingly dry-hopped with meridian and crystal hops for a rich, citrusy finish. Beer with a backbone. Born from a place where a little heavy weather never hurt anyone, Hmm. is what they say. Um, And I do think, I mean, there's a sharp taste to this. Yeah. But you can tell that this is a brewery that really was working on perfecting its lagers before they hopped onto the, into the um, IPA Oh yeah. Train. So mm-hmm. um so yeah, this one is just called IPA. Uh <laughs> no no just big the name. Bu- the buoy IPA. Yeah, it's just the buoy IPA. Um I also really like their Northwest Red Ale. Yeah. That's a pretty hoppy red mm-hmm. ale that I enjoy a lot. Um and then yeah, when we were out there they had some stuff on tap that was pretty good. So so yeah. Yeah. There's my beer. I like yeah. it. Yeah, it's a good solid Oregon IPA. I was looking up. You said there are four breweries in Astoria. There were four at the time. At the this time, was the fourth one. The fourth. There are more in now. In 2013, there are more now. So, according to the internet, 
Uh-oh. The population of Astoria, as of t- 2017, was less than 10,000 people. Oh. So if it just, it's find it interesting, because I know, like, kind of, you know, early days of America, even probably pre-colonial, maybe even colonial America, it was mm-hmm. kind of like every little town had its own brewery. Right. But, you know, so it kind of makes me think of, like, this part of, of America is kind of like that. Yeah. You know, because there are so many breweries in in the smallest towns mm-hmm. that you can think of. So. But Astoria is really a tourist. It is a touristy town for touristy sure. Touristy so, town yeah. these days, I think, with um, all the fishing that happens out there. Um, it's beautiful. You know, of course, it's got the Goonies house, so you kind of have to yeah. swing out there. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. And... It's oh, it's still only ten thousand, huh? I would have nine thousand eight hundred sixty-two, and that was in twenty seventeen. Huh. I would have thought it was a little bit bigger by then, but yeah. or by now, but mm. yeah. All right, well, Rocket Man. Yeah, the life story okay. of Elton John. John. So, we both really liked it. Sounds like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, too bad. Kind of feel a little bad we didn't get to we didn't end up tra- tracking it down in a theater. But, I know. Yeah. I know. Uh, but yeah, okay. So we've each come up with our three favorite things, which was kind of hard for really? me. Yeah. Because uh, you liked so many things? Well, yeah. Well, there's like, there would be like a thing that I liked that I could break down into smaller things. Ah. You yeah. know, and there's like multiple instances of that. Uh, but we've each come up with our three favorite things uh, about the movie. We haven't shared them with each other until now. We'll go back and forth doing that. Spoiler alert, if you haven't yet been able to track down Rocket Man and see it, because we won't hold back on the life of Elton John. No, we, we will not. we talk about it. And again, I will go first. Yes. So, a lot of music in this movie. Mm-hmm. You could, I mean, I, some people would probably describe it as a musical. That's how I describe it. Yeah. Okay. Um, and... There's so much about the music that I like. Not mm-hmm. just that it's Elton John's music, which is great, uh, but how they do the music. See, that's the thing. I could have just taken the music and it made it three different things mm-hmm. that I liked about the music. So it was really hard because I didn't want to do that. But I also don't want to just say, I like all the music, everything about it. My mm-hmm. favorite thing. Um, so I'll just say that. I'll just pick one of the songs. Okay. That they do. They use one of my favorite Elton songs, uh, is Saturday Night's All Right for Fighting. And it is kind of the first, is it the first musical number of the movie? No, because the first musical number is The Bitch is Back. Oh, that's right. <laughs> Which is what shocked me. And I was like, oh, oh. Because he's we're still a little kid. watching a musical. Yeah. And so. The, the, I mean, the splitting hairs difference between what I think of as a musical is that songs were written to comment or move the plot ahead. Right. Where these are just taking songs that you already know and they fit a scene, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but anyway, young Elton John, who uh, the family discovers is like a natural virtuoso on right. the piano. Um, and they... Uh, this cracks me up. They take him. He's essentially going to go play at a pub. Right. And he's like 10. As one does. He's like a 10-year-old <laughs> going in. Like people are kind of like, 
it's like you know pre karaoke. So this right. is why they, everybody just took turns, you know, perform open mic night at the local pub, if you will. And there's even some bitter old grumpy, you know, dude who's like you know th- probably three pints into the night who's heckling this ten year old. I know. You know, and then, and then he pounds away into Saturday Night's All Right for Fighting. And it's what transitions the movie from little boy, El, or Reggie is what his mm-hmm. you know, real uh, name was originally. Birth name, yeah. Birth name. And it transitions into um, adult Elton John, mm-hmm. right? Like kind of in the middle of the musical number and the dancing. And there's actually a dance number. And you see him, he's like at a carnival. This is where Taron Edgerton shows up as young Elton John. Right. You know, and it also transitions the movie from into uh, Elton John professional musician. Right. You know. Right. And so instead, for the very beginning is all family dynamics. And now, you know, my life is this, is is music and discovering myself. And it is, you know, one of my favorite songs. There's actual fighting that takes place. Um, it's the... F- I don't know about the first time, but the first time you see El- adult Elton John um, and like the hint towards his sexuality, mm-hmm. it's just so much fun stuff about it. Um, I think, and it's the first time you hear Taryn, you know, like a full song with Taryn Egerton singing and you realize that it's only him. Right. Which I really, and I really like, um, you know, the music in Bohemian Rhapsody was also great, but also it was a combination of Remy Malik's voice and Freddie Mercury's voice, and a third dude who sounds like Freddie Mercury. So I really appreciated that they let Taryn just, you know. Go. Just go. And, mm-hmm. you know, don't worry about trying to imitate him. Just, you know. So I really like that. And that number is a lot of fun and uh, really kind of kicks the movie forward, I right. feel. I agree. So so that number is my first favorite thing. Um. I would say, so apparently that little boy, not only is he playing at a pub, right? But it apparently is a meat auction. (laughs) That's the event. That's taking place. That they're having at the pub. Oh, oh, the British. Right? English in your... (laughs) Oh, it just cracks me up. Um, Okay, so I also had a hard time picking just three because i did really like there were so many aspects that i liked yeah so i tried to um distill them into like broader categories so i went a little bit different um but one of the things that i really did like is i really liked that this was a musical Mm -hmm. you know that you had an interpretation of this um man's life where he, you know, you could kind of almost connect, well, not almost, they're very deliberate, about connecting songs to his life story, Yeah, you know? And he didn't write his own lyrics. Those were written by his friend Bernie. Mm-hmm. But um, I imagine that if you live in music as, mu- as thoroughly as Elton did, that um, when you're reviewing your life story, having it set to music would be the most natural thing in the world, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And so I think that they they do that here. They, it's like a representation of almost like Elton kind of thinking about his songs and thinking about his life and pulling the two together. 
you know, mm-hmm. um, which is great. I know that I tend to have a, a constant soundtrack in my own head mm-hmm. about what's happening in my life. So there's always songs going on. Um, but now, you know, he this this version of it is just really, really good. Yeah. I also liked that the fact that Dexter Fletcher, who was the director of this one and was um, like assistant director and then took over. Um, for Brian Singer on Bohemian Rhapsody mm-hmm. was really able to um, to develop two very different for, like music bio, biopics, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so I really, I thought the way that he wove songs together was really good. I, I hadn't um, paid much attention to a lot of the reviews or information about Rocket Man while it was in theaters. Yeah. So when it starts with him reminiscing, you know, they talk, you know, first question, like, tell, where did you grow up? Tell me about your life or whatever. And it starts with a musical and a dance mm-hmm. down the street and, uh, and them singing the bitches back. I was like, oh, okay, I guess this is the type of movie we're watching. Mm. Let's go. Um, and I thought they did... So I just thought they did a really good job of blending the two, of making it both fantastical mm-hmm. and, you know, have the truth in there. Um, I thought it was... I just... I really enjoyed just that piece of it. Yeah. I know that some people did not like it because they were like... What do you mean? It's a musical. I didn't pay money to go watch a musical. Yeah, there are just people that are just out on when it's a musical. It doesn't matter what right. it is, how good it is. Yeah. And I get that. Um, so, yeah. I mean, I, I get that, that it's not some people's cup of tea, mm-hmm. as it were. But I I really liked that. Just that as a piece. Like, mm-hmm. the musical. Which is great. Yeah. Now, well, my second thing is similar in that I also um, like that they didn't never try to make it a straight, you know, biography, Mm -hmm. you know, typical, you know, this is a based on a true story or whatever they always say in beginning these movies. And they were pretty upfront about this, um, that this movie about Elton's life wasn't going to be all true either. Mm -hmm. In the, I think in the early trailers, they called it a true fantasy or a musical fantasy. They used the word fantasy in describing mm-hmm. like what on the posters and in the early trailers. But that's what this movie was. And then the first trailer I saw, you saw part of a dance number breaking out. Right. And so I was like, oh, okay. And, and now that they did that and they made sure that they leaned into it and they weren't hiding it from people... You have license to to do that sort of stuff. You can have a dance number breakout. You can have a weird dreamy... Uh, pool sequence where mm-hmm. Elton John tries to commit suicide and he sees like the little kid version of himself at the bottom of a swimming pool playing the piano in like a diver's gear. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, and just all these artistic f- flourishes yeah. that they get, that they that they tried in telling us, in telling the story. You know, it didn't have to be and, and about, and the fact, you know, and they didn't have to worry about trying to get all the facts right you know yeah. or trying to trick you into thinking that this is a how it went down because you know you don't have i mean uh early on when he and bernie are kind of auditioning for like the local record company or whatever that they worked for for quite a while 
and he's at the piano and uh, he starts playing little bits of songs and that cranky old guy, you mm-hmm. know, record producer is like, Dick James. Yeah, Dick James, like, sucks, crap, that's depressing. You know, right. he just cuts him off and he, like a couple of the songs, like one of them was like, you know, and that's why they call it the blues. That's 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 an 80s song. I remember that from when I was a kid, which wasn't written then because this was like, this scene takes place in 70, whatever. You know, but but whatever. But maybe that's when they had the thought. Maybe, but <laughs> I'm pretty sure. Uh, uh, but you know, but it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter because uh, you know. And there's other things that if you look on IMDb, it says that they used this song here when they hadn't written it yet, and blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. But whatever, you know, it just this song works here for what we're tell what this scene conveys. This part of the story. This part of his life. They you know they even. They even uh, changed lyrics of some of the songs, you know, small changes, so that mm-hmm. it's more true to him, and not necessarily, even though that's not what you hear on the radio a million times. Right. So I just really appreciated this, the very, um, the artistic chance they took in making this, and not just making another, you know, biography. Right. You know, tried this, and true. Another, just you know, a higher budgeted version of behind the music from VH1. Right. Right. Exactly. Something very different. Um, connected to that is I really liked the trivia piece where they said that like part of the problem with getting this movie made um, is that producers told Elton John that they wanted to make a PG-13 rated film. Right. And um, and that's what Bohemian Rhapsody was, right? Mm-hmm. It was um, PG-13 and that's a lot of the criticism that it got is it was a highly sanitized version of Freddie, Mercury. of Freddie Mercury's life. Yeah. Um, and John Elton John apparently told all of the producers the same thing. He had not led a PG-13 life. Yeah. And I think that that was also bold. So you have a musical that is also rated R. Yes. So that that's a, a combination I don't know that I can say I've seen. Yeah. And I mean, it could be. I don't know. Was I mean, Moulin Rouge rated R? Probably not. I'm pretty sure it was PG-13. Um, but yeah, and uh, you know, kudos to him because you know it's not like it took a while to get this thing made. Mm-hmm. You know, it was in production and attached to different directors and actors for a long time. And at any point, I'm sure Elton John could have taken a paycheck and just and acquiesced to the PG-13 thing, right? But never did. So, so. okay, so my number two is Taron Egerton. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I am a fan of his. I've been a fan of his work for a while now. Um, I did not, I had not been aware of exactly um, how good of a singer he is. Yeah. Um, apparently, he he recorded a few songs for the movie Eddie the Eagle, mm-hmm. which I didn't know because even though we've seen that movie, I haven't paid. I didn't pay that much attention to the soundtrack, so I wouldn't have sure. known that mm-hmm. he had done that. Um, I did know that he is in the animated film Sing. Oh yeah, um, is that the one with the pig singing? My pig is like a talent show. Somebody's a talent show, but it's animals. Mm, yes, right. So it's like Zootopia. Think Zootopia, a right. small town in that universe, mm-hmm. doing some sort of musical talent show. Yeah, I think. I haven't seen it, but I know Taron Egerton is in it, um, and he does all his own vocals in that movie as well. Okay. So, um, yeah, so he's got a great voice. He's very talented, so uh, I'm glad he got to do this after Robin Hood, uh, because 
this was better. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, and I love, like, I'm not surprised that actors have decent singing voices. Like, whenever an actor, like, ventures into the music world and, like, releases the album, I f- uh, re- releases an album, I always feel like critics are way too hard because they're like, oh, they're not singers, they're mm. actors. But these are people who are trained in a variety of manners, not only in, in acting, but also voice and inflection. And so they've got very well-trained voices. So the fact that that many actors have mm-hmm. de- decent voices is not a surprise to me. The fact that Taron Egerton takes on Elton John songs yeah. with the um, gusto and talent and flair that he does did impress me. Yeah. So that was that was really cool. Um, I also love the fact that he threw himself into portraying such a flamboyant persona Mm -hmm. as Elton John. I mean, Elton John is, is flashy and, you know, has crazy outfit choices. Um, And so I think Taron Egerton did a great job of just diving right into that wholeheartedly. You know, he wore 53 different pairs of glasses in this movie and he owned like every single one of them like mm-hmm. that owned them personally right but owned it as like yeah i'm wearing these heart-shaped glasses mm. and they're awesome you know they're pink with my orange outfit great fashion choice yeah. <laughs> so i i really like it elton john totally approved of him in as playing him even though his first choice was uh justin timberlake mm. um no thank you what no you gotta i I, uh, an Englishman needs to play Elton John. Okay. I, yeah, I agree. I just think jo- Justin Timberlake is quite talented and oh, can do yes. a good job. Oh, yes. yeah. But, uh, yeah, no, Taryn did a great job. I loved that Elton John was so happy that Taryn did it, that he also gave Taryn approval. Like, you, sing it the way you sing it, not mm-hmm. the way I sing it. Yeah. Um, which is great. Um. I think how crazy would it be to be portraying somebody so famous and have them like watching you and judging you and being like, nailed it. You got me. Thanks. Like, yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I just thought uh, Taryn Egerton does an amazing job in this movie. Um, crazy talented. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, I understand what you're saying about like actors and, you know, now they can, they are trained in different styles, different things, and they can sing. But it doesn't apply to everybody. Mm-hmm. Bruce Willis released an album back in the day. <laughs> the Return of Bruno didn't need to happen. I did not know that. You didn't hear? You don't know about the Return of Bruno? <laughs> no. Oh my goodness! Are we gonna look that up when this? Once you this can look that over? up if you want. Oh, we're doing it together, babe. Mm-hmm. All right, number three. Number three for me is uh, the scene at the Troubadour. So mm-hmm. they come to America, Bernie, Elton, they're record people, and they're going to play at the legendary Troubadour in right. Los Angeles, California. Uh, that scene, before he's about ready to go perform, uh, shows just the spectrum of emotions. You know, because you have, you know, this uh, you know kid who... Uh, Probably always struggling with confidence of the way they portray his parents and how uh, they were, 
varying degrees absent and cruel. Yeah. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, finding a little bit of confidence with his friend Bernie and in their music. And now they're in America, you know, to perform. And he's put on the weird star-spangled silver coveralls. Right. And, like, the glasses. And he's, like, he has he has the... He started with the look. Yeah. he You know, he had the, the confidence to put on this nonsense mm-hmm. to go out on stage with, right? And he's some people in the their backing band was like, or people backstage were like, what are you wearing? Right. You know, and this is the 70s. So it's not like everybody was wearing, you know, normal shit anyway. Yeah. Um, and But then Bernie comes in. He's been at the out at the bar. He's like, oh, I just had a beer with the Beach Boys. And I met this person. Yeah. This person's out there. <laughs> and Elton's just... Freaking st- out. Is just fear-stricken immediately. And the next thing you know, he's locked himself in the stall in the bathroom. Freaking out. These people that they've probably idolized mm-hmm. over, you know, in, uh, well, over in Britain are out there. Right. You know, and it takes uh, some cajoling, a, th- a couple threats you know, from the record people. And... Is it Ray Williams or Tate Donovan that come in? I want to say it's t- it's so Ray Williams come in comes in like his uh, uh, the produ- the record the record producer. producer. Yeah, he comes in, yeah. but isn't it the other guy who comes in and is like, "Get your ass out there!" Like, I forget. pull up your big boy pants and. Everybody there. takes a turn. Yeah. And I forget which one actually gets him out of the stall. And he says something, you know, uh, as once he comes out of the stall, and I forget what it is, but it's pretty funny. It's some sort of version of the British, you know, stiff upper lip. Right. Whatever. Well, all right then. All like... right then, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, walks out on stage, uh, you know, fear in his eyes. But then, you know, the performance, you know, it crushes. Mm-hmm. You know, he has the audience in the palm of his hand. You know, he's putting his foot up on top of the keys as he's pounding away on the keyboard. And then again, you have your first kind of flourish of the fantastical as they show him his feet levitating off the ground. Right. You know, in slow motion as he plays. And then the whole audience coming comes up, up off, off the, the ground, ground yeah, is with like... him. And it's like really good. You know, it kind of shows that kind of, in a way, the high that you can feel when you're you know, in this communal thing when you're witnessing an artist, you mm-hmm. know, doing something special. Um, and also it homages a very famous picture of Elton where he's like playing live somewhere and he literally, his feet are off the ground almost straight out behind him somehow. Right. You know, and so that's kind of a way of their way of, you know, showing that. And yeah, just, you know, put, put you on the map performance. Mm-hmm. That really, um, and from this moment on, the store, the, gas pedal of the movie is to the fore because right. it gets crazy from there. Yeah. You know, all this, all the backstory, all the setup ends there and it's just, you know, and, it, and it's just the rock and roll story for the rest of the way. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the Troubadour scene's great. I agree. It is really good. Um, so my number three is uh, the supporting cast. Um, specifically Jamie Bell and Richard Madden. Yeah. So first of all, uh, I was shocked. I, I honestly have never seen Jamie Bell perform in something that I've really liked. Oh yeah. And I get that, um, 
part of that just has to do with my own like movie history. Like I actually never saw Billy Elliot. Me either. You know, I knew about it, but I didn't see it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he was in a bunch of kind of forgettable things like Jumper and um, and Fantastic then, Four. And then he did Fantastic Four, which was really poor casting, I thought. Yes. Um, so I, not a fan of Jamie Bell too much because I didn't know him. Right. At, he is so good in this. Yes. So good. I was astounded by his interpretation of of this mild-mannered, easygoing songwriter mm-hmm. um, that has been Elton John's friend for decades. Yeah. So, um, so I appreciated that. I really liked that he was so accepting of Elton John um, because he learns, he or he understands very early on, that Elton John is gay, mm-hmm. and um, and like there are two parts that I particularly liked. Um, the first is they're sitting on the roof after he's found. They've gotten drunk. Um, he knows Elton John is gay, and Elton leans in for a kiss, and Bernie just gently says, "You know, no," mm-hmm. and he goes, "I love you, man," um, but just not like that, but not that way. Right, and that's it. And, like, he's, I love you. Like, you are, you know, but not like that. And it is it is a gentle rejection. And, and they both kind of understand, like, we have a bond. It's just not going to be a romantic bond. Yeah. Um, of course, then he's like, ah, you're going to have to tell, the, you know, your girlfriend. <laughs> right. He did have a girl. He was dating, right. like, the, the landlord. The landlady, landlady. right. Yeah. Um, so I really, but I just really like that moment because I feel like that, really set that stage for the fact that it's okay. Like there's so much, so many times when I feel like people who exhibit intense homophobia exhibit it because they don't know how to handle the idea that they're, that you can be friends with somebody who is attracted to somebody, you know, like of your gender, just Uh not you. Mm -hmm. Um, which is weird that we can't seem to do that with, I don't know. Anyway, um, but then the second point is there, it's about two thirds through the movie and you're watching the descent into just addiction, mm-hmm. like crazy. And, uh, Taron Egerton is in his out, one of his crazy getups and he's about to go on stage and he's yelling at Bernie. Yeah. You know, like, you don't understand. You don't know what you're, blah, 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 blah. And he starts to stomp on stage and then he just stops and without looking back, he reaches back and grabs, you know, Bernie's hand. So yes. Jamie Bell and just says, I'm sorry. Yeah. And Bernie just goes, I know. Yeah. And then he goes on stage and performs. And I just feel like that's a great friendship there where you just accept when you fully accept somebody for who they are. And that's OK. Yeah. And Jamie Bell does that so much in facial expressions because he's so mild throughout this movie. He's mm-hmm. just easygoing. Elton John said famously, like, they've never argued um, in their years of friendship. So I just, I thought, I thought Jamie Bell does a great job being understated. Yeah. Um, and the other person was Richard Madden as John Reed. So 
we typically have known Richard Madden as Rob Stark. Yes. <laughs> from Game of Thrones. The brief, briefly appointed King of the North. Right. Right. Until the Red Wedding. The Young Lion. Yes. Um, uh, the Wolf. wolf. Young, young Wolf. wolf. Yeah. Um, and uh, so he plays John Reed and gets to use his authentic or um, Scottish accent there. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and he's also plays a very compelling character in in John Reed. Um, and we have learned that Dexter Fletcher does not have a high opinion of John Reed. Oh. Because John um he's so a... um Robert Madden plays John Reed in this film. Right. Um John Reed is also in um, Bohemian, Bohemian Rhapsody, Rhapsody. Yeah. right? And in both movies, he's a dick. Yeah. Like, for all his wealth, he's a bit of a dirtbag. Right. In um, Bohemian Rhapsody, he's seen as manipulative and isolating um, Freddie, Freddie Mercury, yeah. Mercury from his band, right? So mm-hmm. you, he's definitely like, ooh, sleazeball. And that's fine because he's played by Littlefinger, so you kind of already expect that. Mm-hmm. Um, but in this movie, John Reed is still very controlling and isolates Elton John from like his founding manager, Dick James and Ray Williams, and, um, even appears to isolate him from Bernie as much as possible. Mm -hmm. Um, and I mean, he's, so he's seen manipulative and isolating so that he can be in control, maintain Elton as dependent on him, both emotionally, sexually, and as his manager. Um, And in this movie, he's even physically abusive. Yeah. You know? So it doesn't, there doesn't seem to be evidence in real life that the physically, physical abuse was real. Mm -hmm. But he's still an asshole as far as Dexter Fletcher is, is concerned and in all of his interpretations. And I found that to be interesting you know so um i i'm i'm highly intrigued in what the real story is yeah but robert madden madden does a great job of just playing this very cold and manipulative human being Mm -hmm. um especially since in game of thrones he's pretty naive (laughs) it's interesting so he that this person was portrayed by two different Game of Thrones veterans mm-hmm. in different movies. Mm-hmm. It is interesting, but isn't no, that funny? Yeah, but it's like I when um because we you know we we really like that series. After um, the first season, nobody can watch Sean Bean die again. Um, but like I I find myself anytime any of the cast, particularly the young cast, mm-hmm. show up in something else, I'm like happy for them. I'm rooting for them to, you know, because they were also good. Mm-hmm. I don't want them to be kind of like typecast. Right. And like, oh, they were the Game of Thrones kids, you know, and not be able to try to do other things. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and it's a very different role than Rob Stark. Oh, yeah. For sure. Um, you could say, you can almost wonder, because he shows up, you know, the night of the troubadour. Like mm-hmm. after they're having like an after, they all go to Mama Cass's house for a party. And that's where they meet. And this is, you know, you can almost wonder, you know, I don't, Makes you wonder if maybe he was, he was almost like a, you know, he was a, a prey, predator, a predator yeah. preying on uh, this young artist who was clearly just kind of coming into his own 
both musically and sexually or whatever. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's uh he's a uh, I mean as much as I like that actor, it's like God, it sucks to watch him be such a bad yeah. guy. Yeah, you know, but but he does it well. So all right, okay, it's time for some honorable cool. mentions. I enjoyed just kind of a little subtle thing in the beginning, how they just kind of show uh, that Elton just you just had it in him, mm-hmm. you know he could he could just you just play. Right. It makes me think one of my favorite scenes uh, from the movie Goodwill Hunting made me think of this when uh, Will when Matt Damon is talking to Minnie Driver and he's trying to explain to her why like doing all the all the the, the smart stuff that the math the math you know how he even though he'd never gone to college or whatever and he was trying to explain it to her. He goes Beethoven, Beethoven guys like that never took a lesson. They just saw a piano, and it made sense to them, and they could and they could always just play. And he points out her books, and he says, "When it comes to this stuff, I could always just play." Mm-hmm. And that sort of thing, because there are people like that, and I don't, and I'll never be like that. But it's fascinating to me that they exist. Right. So I love that. Literally came to a piano and a musician. Elton could always just play. Mm-hmm. So I like that. Yeah, I liked the scene where he hears. The um, piano teacher that he's supposed to audition for yeah. playing. And then she stops midway and he sits down and he can play from memory her spot. And she's like, well, why did you stop? And he's like, well, because that's as far as you got. Right. You know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah. It, it, I, and it, it was most likely an exaggeration. I know. Sure. But the idea that he was just talented enough to to do that kind of hear the music mm-hmm. and know where it was supposed to go on the piano is pretty impressive. Yeah. So, um, I had, uh, you know, I mentioned the supporting cast in, uh, Robert Madden and, and Jamie Bell and my honorable mention has to go to Bryce Dallas Howard mm-hmm. in this, um, as Elton John's mother, Sheila. Yes. Uh, cause Sheila is horrible. Yeah. And she's horrible in a really sad way because she's so indifferent mm-hmm. to her son. Um, and Bryce Dallas Howard um, did an interview with Val- Vanity Fair where she said, like, she read the script initially and she was like, this is just a crazy over-the-top vilification of this woman. There's no way she could be this horrible. Mm-hmm. Um, but then after doing her own research was like, oh no, she was worse because in the movie, so much of the, of it is indifference right. and lack of caring. Mm-hmm. And um, Howard talked about how there was so much in, from what she learned about Sheila that was calculating Oh, really? Versus, like, there are some people who are cruel and don't know that they're being cruel. And then there are the people who are cruel on purpose. Oh, because yeah, I always took it as the first mm. of those for for movie. For the for movie purposes. Yeah. yeah. And in reading this article and then a couple others after that, it did sound like there was... Mm-hmm. Um, a, it, I mean, I don't ever want to think anybody is deliberately cruel, but it sounds like there was some of that, you know? Um, and so it just wouldn't, inter- I mean, what an interesting character to play, to have to play someone who is 
who is so broken that, you know, she can't love her son. Yeah. You know, or that any love that she was able to display came at a cost, you know, and and required her to lash out and keep her son at arm's length and say, you know, and say things like, you know, of course I knew you were gay, but like. And I just feel sad for you because you'll never be loved properly, you know. Right. And you'll never know love. Yeah. You'll never know love. And like, who says that to their child? Yeah. Um. And so it's like, she may have loved her son in some way, but her way of showing it was was very broken mm-hmm. and you know, and and cruel. Um. And I'm amazed that they were able to reconcile. Like, apparently, um, they were estranged for, for a number of years. Um, while, And she used to even go and say on, like, interviews and stuff, like, it was all um, David Furnish's fault. It was that guy's fault. She would just be so cruel to, you know, the man her son loved. Oh, um, But loved John Reed. Okay. Right? Uh-huh. Um. And so, like, it just, it to me, it showed the amazing capacity for forgiveness because I just think about Elton John's upbringing and his life in a, in a time where, you know, he was clearly searching for love in so many unhealthy ways, mm-hmm. you know, because he, he didn't get it at home. And that he then was able to find a way to reconcile with her, you know, right before she died. Yeah. So mm-hmm. it was like it made me even more impressed with Elton John. Like, what an incredible capacity for forgiveness yeah. to do that. So, okay. mm, I liked the end credits where they would pair a, a, like a still shot from the movie mm-hmm. of Taron Egerton, and with a real life photo from Elton's yeah. life. And they were always like, it was like, uh, it was essentially like, here's Taron in one of these crazy costumes before he went on stage. And here's the real life picture of Elton in the same costume. Uh-huh. So there was a bunch of that. It shows you like how um, true to true to real that the, all those crazy get-ups were. Right. You know, so which I really, I thought that was like a fun thing that they kind of went through during the first couple of minutes, at least of the end credits. I, I saw a review where that was one of the criticisms, like Taron Egerton is overly flamboyant. Like he's taking it, too crazy and i'm like i'm sorry talking about did you see those credits because if you saw the fact that those outfits were taken directly from elton john's wardrobe um then you know taron egerton was not taking it too far in his craziness i mean elton i think more of a suit wearing guy these days Mm -hmm. you know uh but yeah i mean that's pretty ignorant of Right. The guy's career. So. Yeah. Any other honorable mentions? Um, that it ends with I'm Still Standing. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, uh, I remember seeing that video, and I thought it was funny that they used the actual video that Elton made in the 80s, but just put Taron Egerton in it, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and it's just, and it comes after he's been in rehab. But that's not how it was in real life. He was, hadn't gone to rehab yet. <laughs> uh, that song was about um, 
it's still it was about overcoming it was about how he came through the other side of the 70s and a lot of his contemporaries from then uh were gone right. in one way or another but he was still there mm-hmm. i'm still here and i'm still relevant so uh i don't know i just uh I, know, I thought that was kind of a neat um, way to end it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Agreed. Okay. Anything you didn't like? Well, and this has nothing to do with. Um, I didn't. This has nothing to do with the what the movie did or how it looked, because uh, it did everything wonderfully. But it's just all the uh, once once he starts tail spinning into all the addictions. Mm-hmm. You just want it to be over. It's you, awkward. It is painful. It's, it, it's painful to watch, and it feels like it goes on. And it, but it needs to happen, mm-hmm. right? It needs to happen. You need to see it. You can't, um, you know, uh, I don't know what the right word is. You can't, you know, let um, sanitize that. Right. right. That needs to be for real. It feels like it goes on quite a while. I'm sure it did go on for quite a while. Oh, uh, yeah. You know, but it's just, it's like the, the bummer part of the movie, and you just find yourself, can we get back to the part where, uh, you know, he's not, like, screaming at people and just being so self-destructive? Can we get back to good times? Right. You know? So it's not that it does, the movie does anything poorly. It's just that that's just, after you're on such a high because of how good everything is and how fun it is, and then the tailspin happens, you're like, ah. Oh, I know it's coming, but man. Right. Does it have to? I just, well, and I I agree, but I also really looked at that in terms of that right there was the um, part where I think Elton John probably was like dug his heels in. I did not live a PG-13 life. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. I did every drug under the sun. I was a sex addict. I like performed you know drunk and high multiple times like mm-hmm. and so it is it's like cringing and awkward but i also loved that it was i mean it would be easy for someone to also want to flash forward through that part of their own life yeah you know to for Elton John to be like, yeah, I mean, you can show a little bit, but let's just yeah. fast forward through that. Like, Those aren't my best years. And have just like a title card that says, you know, 10 drug-fueled years later. Right, you, you know. who glad that's over. And, you know? and the fact that he doesn't, yeah. that he is able to to take that, take that extended trip with his audience mm-hmm. is pretty cool. Yeah. You know, I, I like it is. It's super awkward. Yeah. But I also really was like, yeah, I mean, and and it, it's probably a pretty authentic rendition. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and it's uh, and maybe some I don't know if some people might not like it, but the, the you know, the, the song that the movie's named after, maybe his most mm-hmm. recognizable song is a song that they use in the midst of that mm-hmm. of that addiction, you know. Right. So. Um, so there were only two things that I didn't really like, and they were pretty minor. Yeah. Um, the first is, I wish that they had ended the story after Elton met his love and eventual oh, I didn't husband, think about David Furnish. Yeah. Right? I mean, they ended after his stint in sobriety. 
And then they kind of are like, oh, and then he met David and fell in love yeah. and they've been together ever since. And I just, I feel like so much of this movie is grounded in a man who was not loved as a child mm-hmm. and who is seeking that love throughout his life um, in horribly destructive ways. Why he, I mean, in real life, he has pretty close to a happy ending. I mm-hmm. mean, he's sober. He's married to a wonderful man. They have two kids. That's why he retired was to focus on his family. Mm-hmm. You know, like, if that's not the happy ending you want to see in a movie, I don't know what it is. Yeah. And so I, I just, I felt sad that that's where they stopped. Right before. Yeah. He finds love. You know, and I get it. It's not a love story. If it was a love story, I probably would have been like, we're watching a love story. But, it, I mean, but it is. It, it is a story of love mm. and, you know, how people interpret it when they have, when they're not getting, when, they, when they've when they lived a life without it. Yeah. So, um, so anyway, so that's, I wish we could have gotten to meet David in the movie. Okay. The other thing is, is that, um, I don't understand, like going back to Robert Madden was great as John Reed, but I'm just confused as to why like Fletcher hates John Reed (laughs) or why the writers needed him to be a villain twice. Yeah. I mean, in, um, in Bohemian Rhapsody, it is implied that he was, you know, kind of, again, a skeezy manager, super isolating and controlling. Mm-hmm. Um, but they don't ever, like, not all of that was true. I mean, they're pretty honest about their embellishments in some of those areas. And Freddie Mercury never actually left Queen. Right. You know? Um, so, so there, so again, he's vilified there. He's definitely made out to Mm -hmm. be one of the villains. And in this movie, he's not only the villain, he's an abusive partner. Um, but like in real life, Reed actually never got fired as Elton John's manager. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was a manager, one of his managers for years. Um, and Elton John eventually did take him to court and sue him for like mismanagement, but there's no evidence that he ever you know, hit was physically abusive to Elton or anything like that. So I just was like, I mean, Reed's probably a douchebag, but if he's a douchebag, at least tell us why for real. Yeah. You know? So I just felt like one time seeing, um, you always want the, the musician's manager to be the bad guy. Yeah. Right. They're always trying to take advantage or... Right, yeah. the band manager is always out for more money and just trying to like squeeze every last drop out of him and blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. So he makes a convenient villain, and if he is a villain in in Elton John's story, that's fine. I just want to know the real reasons. There's no reason if he was. I mean, if he's a physically abusive partner, then by all means, like put that in the movie and make you know, mm-hmm. but. But that's not necessarily a truthful scene. And so I just wonder, I don't know. It just was one of those things where it was like, all right, Fletcher, 
you clearly got to be in your bonnet about this guy. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, and but you know, who knows how much? Um, I mean, how much control he had over Bohemian Rhapsody. I think a lot of that was already written before he came on board. Mm-hmm. I mean, he doesn't get a directing credit for that movie at all. Mm-hmm. They gave it all. The Directors Guild gave sole directing credit to Brian Singer. Right. Um, but yeah, I don't know. That guy must have a history. Is all I can assume. Right. Well, I did look him up. I'm like, who's John Reed? Was he really an asshole? Was, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Google. Was yeah. John Reed really an asshole? Right. Oh, wait. Hit mute. We don't want Google answering yeah. it during our podcast. So, anyway, that's really, really the only two things that I didn't like yeah. about this movie mm. of any significance. Okay. All right. Well, um, I haven't done any sort of recommendations things in a while, Mm-mm. but I'm going to do one. Okay. Um, and it's because it pertains to this. Um, there is a SoundCloud page I'm going to direct uh, you to. There's this guy named Christian James Hand. Uh, he does radio in Southern California. Uh, it's known as the Session on Air. He does live shows and also goes on radio and does this too, where he'll take a popular song, usually a rock song, mm, yeah, and breaks it down. He'll take isolate, you know, just the drum part and then just the bass part, guitar part, vocals or whatever, and so you hear each artist, each musician isolating what they do and then puts it all back together, so you hear it all together and you never hear the song the same way again because you hear things you never noticed before all the time. He also always does a lot of research into the band or the artist and in the making of this song or their career, what led them to this. And it's always super interesting. Yeah, we've, done, um, we've listened to we've a listened couple to of them. We've listened to them before. Yeah. Um, and it, every Monday morning, he goes on the morning radio show for KLOS um, in Los Angeles and uh, does a segment where he breaks down a different song every Monday morning. And they, they put those segments on a SoundCloud page. So if you just search SoundCloud for KLOS or Christian James Hand, you'll find them. And there's a lot of them. And there are two Elton John songs that he has on there. Uh, Saturday Night all right, is All Right for Fighting is one of them. And it is incredible. Uh, he talks about the making of that double album that it is on. And how Bernie wrote the lyrics to all the songs on that double album in the span of a couple weeks, oh, gave wow. the lyrics to Elton. Elton pounded out all the piano stuff in three days. Ugh. And then... Well, I mean, he was pretty heavily using drugs at the time, so sure. I mean, I might mean, probably stayed up all three days. So they had all the songs as far as lyrics and piano figured out before they went to the recording studio in that short of time. And then the musicians that they had were incredible... But the best part is when he just isolates the piano track and you hear him just absolutely hammering away. And it's just so incredible. And he's like, and he's pretty sure that the piano track was recorded in one take. You can't find a spot where maybe they edited in, like put two takes together. Oh, wow. You're pretty sure it's all in one take. And it's incredible. So it's really interesting. Because those segments are on a morning radio show, you do have to suffer through some morning radio DJ humor that's from yeah. time to time yes which can be hit and miss and or miss so but yeah check out Christian James Hand and uh, and uh, KLOS because it's pretty it's pretty interesting I listen to it every week yeah so. we've listened to a couple of their yeah um, episodes together and I would agree they are they're pretty fascinating mm-hmm. so um, so I will echo that recommendation all right so there it is rocket man pretty great yeah um next week 
We were almost ready to move back into the theater. Yeah. Um, but I don't think we're going to. There's a couple of movies in the theater now that I want to see that mm-hmm. we just haven't gotten around to. So hopefully we'll do Ad Astra soon. Mm-hmm. Um, and then The Joker. Joker comes out this out, week. Right. Which I have mixed feelings about. So yeah. it'll be interesting to see it. Um, yeah. And then uh, and then further into October comes uh, the new Zombie Land and Right. Other Excited stuff. about yeah. that. But first, mm. I do think um, we're really excited because we're going to do a special movie yes, next week. that's right. Um, we're going to do the original, well, not the, the original, original but the 1989 Tim Burton, Michael Keaton version of, of Batman. Batman. Yes. Yeah. And we'll explain why we're doing that one yes. next week. Indeed, we will. And until then... Thanks for listening. You can find us on the uh, aforementioned SoundCloud and iTunes and Spotify and a bunch of other places where you find podcasts. If you liked or didn't like Rocket Man or any other movie we've ever done, you can email the podcast to ddkpodcasting at gmail.com. Uh, give us a review on any of those other places or uh, you know, like us on SoundCloud, follow us, all that stuff. That'd be great. Let us know what you think. And until next week, go see a movie. And thanks for listening.